All right, welcome back Behind the Knife listeners. Welcome to our Clinical Challenges and Surgery series. Clinical Challenges and Surgery are interesting and instructive cases that have maximal educational impact. Episodes will be released regularly, so be sure not to miss them. Today, I'm joined by Hassan Alam, acute care surgeon and chair of surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago, and John McClellan, BTK founder and surgical critical care fellow at the University of Washington in Seattle. So let's get started with a real case from a few months ago. An 18-year-old male is brought in as a level one trauma via ground EMS following gunshot wound to the abdomen. His last vitals, heart rate 135, systolic blood pressure 110, and oxygen saturation 98% on a non-rebreather. His primary survey shows an intact airway, bilateral breast sounds, palpable femoral pulses, and a GCS of 15. Secondary survey is notable for a single ballistic wound in the right upper quadrant. The patient's abdomen is tender to palpation, but not peritonitic. Dr. Allen, what's up next? Well, the first thing is to assess the patient quickly to see whether the patient is in shock or not. Um, Although at first glance, the blood pressure doesn't appear to be that low, but you have to look at that in, in proper context. If you look at the shock index, which is the heart rate divided by systolic blood pressure, it's 1.2, and a shock index of more than one predicts higher mortality. So we have to assume that this patient is bleeding and disproven otherwise. Um, so you have to do the basic ABCs of trauma, get uh, appropriate uh, IV access, um, make sure that you have blood handy and start resuscitating, um, and uh, do uh, uh, whole blood or uh, balanced blood product resuscitation and start thinking about how you're going to control the bleeding. Right, right. And by balance, do you refer to a one-to-one-to-one mix of packed cells to FFP to platelets? And this is per the proper and the prompt trials. And so this patient had three 18-gauge IVs when he showed up, amazingly, and was administered one unit of whole blood with a slight improvement in his hemodynamics, but not much change. Yeah, so I mean, you know, have to uh, start thinking about what you're dealing with and how you're going to control the bleeding. This patient uh, appears to be a transient responder, um, and you have to um, do a quick uh, full survey, roll the patient over, see how many bullet holes you have. The bullet holes and the bullets have to add up to an even number. So if you have one hole, you have to assume that there's one bullet inside the patient. Uh, and then you have to uh, quickly decide uh, which body cavity you're going to open and where you're going to go and start planning in that uh, fashion. All right. Just to reiterate, an odd number of holes uh, suggests a retained projectile inside the patient. Uh, it's important that we avoid the use of words entry or exit when describing these injuries, uh, mainly because we don't have that information. We weren't there at the time and we may never have it. Right. I mean, that's exactly right. And we wanted to find the bullet and try to find out its trajectory. So the first thing we did was perform a fast exam and there was no evidence of cardiac injury or pericardial fluid on that fast exam, but there was a, a small amount of free fluid in the right upper quadrant. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, the fast for penetrating abdominal trauma is, is not all that helpful, but it is helpful for what you just mentioned, which is to rule out pericardial fluid. Because, I mean, if somebody is bleeding in the abdomen or they have hollow viscous injury, uh, your fast may not be dramatically positive. So uh, it also helps to know the trajectory of the bullet. So just getting a few quick x-rays to see whether the bullet has gone from the abdomen into the chest or gone across the midline or gone down into the pelvis it really helps you to plan the uh, the operation well. And if you have time, getting a, a cross table also helps. Right. Uh, and the chest x-ray looks fine. Uh, we also saw that a bullet uh, was identified in the right mid to lower abdomen, and it was really just off to the right of the spine. 
Yeah, and that's where, like, you know, if you have time, um, getting a cross table might help you to see whether the bullet is sitting in the subcutaneous tissue or sitting next to the spine, because in a two-dimensional um, uh, film, you, you can't determine that. Yeah, and that's exactly it helps we, you to plan a little bit. Yeah, and we did that. We saw that the bullet was, in fact, in line with the spine. And so based on the AP images we got and that lateral imaging, we were able to determine that the bullet was almost certainly in, in the right retroperitoneum. So with a, a somewhat of a superior to inferior trajectory, remember I mentioned the ballistic injury in the right upper quadrant. Okay, so now we got a trajectory extending from the right upper quadrant inferiorly to the right retroperitoneum. I guess it's time to pack up and head to the operating room for an lap. Right, so we gotta ask John, what about getting a CT scan in this patient? I don't think getting a CT scan in this patient would necessarily change anything. Uh, they still need to go to the operating room based right. on the trajectory. Right, ETP e e e e e for this one. But let's, let's step it back a minute and say, as a, answer the question, when is a CT scan indicated for penetrating wounds to the chest or the abdomen, if it ever is? Well, it, there are there, there is a role, but in a selected group of patients. So, um, for example, a tangential wound uh, that may not penetrate the pleural space or, or the peritoneum. Uh, so same scenario, but the patient has non-tender abdomen, totally hemodynamically stable, gunshot wound to the right upper quadrant, and you're thinking maybe it's wrapped around the body. It, it may be in the subcutaneous space, so tangential wound. Um, now, the other one is if it's gone through the chest and missed the heart and the uh, mediastinal structures, and they may just be a, a hemothorax or lung parenchymal injury. Um, it could be uh, to the liver, um, which could be managed non-operatively. Uh, or it could be um, in, in soft tissue area, for example, penetrating wound to the buttock. Uh, and, you know, you may be able to see the track and determine that it's all extra pelvic and save the patient an operation. So, I mean, you know, for those selected cases, a CT scan can help you um, determine the trajectory and plan your operation. But the common theme with all those patients is that those are all stable and your clinical uh, assessment up front uh, shows you the patient is stable and you're thinking about a non bleeding situation uh, and patient without signs of peritonitis. Additionally, wounds to the retroperitoneum, uh, we can also consider a pelvic, uh, or as some people call it a triple contrast CT scan to help better visualize a colon injury. Um, how well this is pretty controversial and is practitioner as well as hospital dependent. John and Dr. Alman, do you guys use uh, a rectal contrast, triple phase contrast if something uh, through the pelvis or through the RP? Uh, selectively, again, like, you know, every time you give contrast to the patient, whether it's oral or rectal, it adds more time, it adds more um, uh, hassle. Patients don't like it, especially the patients who are alert and awake. Um, and again, like, you know, thinking about a negative predictive value, and if you see contrast leaking out with the rectal contrast, that may help. But if you don't see contrast leaking out, I mean, what's your negative predictive value of that test? So um, especially with ballistic wounds, you can see the track because there is soft tissue changes, there is air tracking along the track. So I think for the first run, I would just sort of not worry about the rectal contrast, but if it's close enough, you have time, you're thinking about sort of like, you know, subtle injury, then do, giving rectal contrast in that patient, it may require like rerunning the scan, um, but I don't do it as a matter of routine for all patients. 
I have used it uh, not necessarily in like projectile wounds, but um, more in like penetrating uh, like stab wounds to the flank and the, the side where you're not sure if it actually entered either the uh, abdomen or electroperitoneum. And that can be helpful. But like Dr. Lam said that if you have any concern, you're going to the operating room anyway. Yeah, all about that negative, considering what that negative predictive value may or may not be. So, all right. So, so John, you mentioned this already. This patient needs to go to the OR, and that's what we did. We made our way to the OR. The patient's hemodynamics improved after a second unit of whole blood and performed an X-lap. This revealed a couple liters of blood in the abdomen mixed with succus. And the abdomen was packed and thoroughly explored. And this revealed injury to D2 and a, a large uh, zone one hematoma. Dr. Alm, how would you proceed at this point? So I think you have two major goals in the following order. If somebody is bleeding, you got to control the bleeding because that's, when gonna, that's what's going to kill them first. And once you have control of bleeding, then you have to look for hollow viscous injury. Um, so it depends on what your findings are. You have suckers and you have bleeding. If you can control the bleeding by packing, then you can just sort of examine the, the abdomen and start planning your strategy. Uh, but a zone one uh, hematoma, I'm thinking about aorta, IBC, I mean, big structures, big vascular structure looking, uh, live in zone one uh, uh, region. Uh, is the hematoma pulsatile expanding? It's not. Okay. Um, even if it's not expanding, I mean, because those structures live there, as long as the patient is uh, stable enough to undergo an exploration, I would do an exploration. If the patient is just sort of moribund, that's a different thing. What, you, what we are dealing with here is a patient who's got a blood pressure, um, who's quasi-stable, but the packing, the bleeding is stopped. But I would talk to the, uh, to the anesthesia team, make sure that they are happy with the access, they have enough blood on, uh, on board, make sure the patient um, gets some of that blood. So if you take the packs out and start exploring, um, there is some physiological reserve in the patient. And then before diving into the hematoma, you have to make sure that you have proximal distal control. You can control the aorta in the supraceliac location, uh, make sure that the aorta is exposed. You have appropriate clamps on hand um, and you have some uh, vascular instruments because you have time. So I would use that time to make sure that both anesthesia and you are on the same page and then you have appropriate tools. Yeah, absolutely. And we were, we were most concerned based, once we opened up and had a good look, you could see that trajectory was uh, a very concerning for an injury to the IBC, especially with that large hematoma that, that was in fact not pulsatile. But um, uh, we did take a peek. We were able to get to the supraceliac aorta. We were able to get down on that when needed. Um, but uh, we went ahead and started for with exposure of the IBC. So John, how do you uh, expose the IBC? Yeah, so this is through the classic uh, right to left medial visceral rotation. Uh, it's a, a short amount of words to, expl to explain a very uh, extensive procedure. Uh, this is accomplished by first taking down the white line of toll and reflecting the hepatic flexure, and then performing, performing a coker maneuver on the duodenum. Right. And, and, and when doing so, you find a ballistic injury through D2, and this involves about 50% of the total circumference of, of, of uh, the, the Dewey. And um, it's on the lateral aspect of, of the of the um, duodenum itself. And you also see a bullet hole at the IVC. So John, um, what instruments would you have on hand before opening up the retroperitoneum and uh, really exposing that injury? 
Yeah, I think the key of that last statement was on hand before opening up the retroperitoneum. Uh, and so have all your equipment ready to go. So you want multiple working suctions with multiple people running those suctions. Uh, you want to have your sponge sticks ready to able to press down on the IVC and get control from a proximal and distal aspect. Uh, you want Alice clamps where you can get a hold of the edges of the IVC and a side biting Satinsky clamp does work very well with an, uh, an IVC injury, uh, especially if you can get a hole or get around the actual hole. Uh, and then obviously you want your suture ready, which in this case would normally be a 3-0 proline sure. long needle driver. Right. Yeah, so, so once everything was exposed, there was a dime sized hole in the lateral aspect of the IVC and sponge sticks were applied above and, above and below. And this, this did a really good job of isolating the defect. Bleeding was slowed significantly. And uh, using a side biting, uh, first DeBakey's and then a side biting Satinsky clamp, it was able to get across that uh, a defect and, and stop the bleeding completely. It was then repaired uh, with a running 3.0 proline suture. And there was, there was some IVC narrowing, but uh, not terribly significant. So let's move on to the, the Dewey repair, because this is really the, uh, uh, this, this can be tough. So um, Dr. Allen, how do you go about, or how would we go about specifically here? Remember 50% injury to D2, how do you fix that? Yeah, I mean, uh, what I tell people is like, think about the duodenum and rest of the small bowel. What's the big difference? Um, one is you can't just resect the duodenum just like you would resect out a piece of small bowel. It's attached to the pancreas, so that's another issue. It's attached to the uh, biliary system, so the ampulla is, a, is an issue. So as opposed to rest of the small bowel that you can just take out a piece and hook it back up, I mean, you have, here you have to worry about, like, we you know whether the pancreas, there's associated pancreatic injury there's associated ampullary injury, and whether that defect you can close primarily or not anatomically uh, without undue tension once you have debrided the, uh, uh, the devitalized tissue. Now, if those structures are not involved, and even if it's a 50% uh, uh, injury, you can get healthy tissue and you can close it, then it's just like closing any other bowel injury. Uh, it's, it's no more um, complicated. Um, you just go ahead and close it primarily. Exactly. And uh, in this case, the common bowel was not uh, uh, directly involved, but the ampulla was about five millimeters away from the injury. And, and after we cleared back some, some of the ragged edges of the tissue, uh, the defect was able to be closed without excessive tension. And, mm -hmm. and that was done with a, a two layers of PDS suture and interrupted 3.0 silk sutures placed in Lambert fashion. And so it was narrowed somewhat, but it came together. And, and, uh, and, and that's totally fine. The only other thing that I would do actually in real life is, um, um, this is real some, life. Some, this was real life. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it put some um, some uh, tissue on top of it. Like you know, if I can rotate an mental pedicle on top of it, um, if I can get some falciform ligament patch on it, or something like that. Because even though if it doesn't have much tension on it, I mean there is again bile and pancreatic juices in there. So a small leak any other location is not as um, devastating as a leak in the duodenum. So I would buttress it with some. Um, some vascularized tissue. Yeah, and this this patient actually had a massive uh, a falciform ligament that was taken down during at the initiation of the X lap, and it just kind of literally flopped right down on top of it. And so that that's uh, a great way to uh, to cover those things as you mentioned. Besides the omen, the omentum itself, and we left uh, a drain uh, immediately adjacent to the to the repair. So what if the uh, what if the injury could not be closed primarily then? Yeah. So, I mean, if, yeah. if you can't close the injury and you have a big gaping hole, then the question is, what are you going to do with it? Uh, first, you have to see whether the patient is stable or not. And it seems like the patient is hemodynamically stable, not bleeding. Your IVC is fixed. So you don't have to do a damage control thing. So you want to do a definitive repair. 
So you can do a deuteronostomy um, or you can bring up a Ruin Y limb um, and do a, um, a deuteronostomy. Um, now, if it is more proximal, then you can just do it like, you know, uh, treat it like a bad perforated ulcer, do an entrectomy um, with a gastrojejunostomy. Um, uh, but in bad situations, just a ruin while limb is very versatile and can get you out of a lot of tough situations where you can just bring up a rule limb. And rather than closing the duodenum under tension, you can do a duodenojejunostomy and almost always you can get away with it. Excellent. So, so all complicated, but, 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 but doable. And so, uh, John, let's say we couldn't identify the ampulla. How would you go about finding it? Yeah. One way you could uh, identify it, and it's obviously you're dealing with a, a mess of bleeding and bile everywhere. You could pass a Fogarty catheter or something, a, fee, a small, a small pediatric feeding tube, uh, down through the cystic duct, uh, and then you can help identify it that way. Awesome. And any other tips or tricks, anything else you want to do in the OR when you're messing with the Dewey? I mean, I, I think if what uh, John is mentioning, so if you do that uh, maneuver and you do find out that the ampulla is destroyed, um, then you that's probably one of those rare situations where you have to do a Whipple. Um, it's not something that has to be uh, taken in a trivial fashion. So, But if the patient is young, patient is stable, that the ampulla is totally destroyed, um, then you can do a Whipple if you don't feel comfortable doing it or the patient is unstable, you can stage it, you know, just sort of uh, leave a drain in there, get the right kind of help, um, um, get some senior partner in there and, and then do it in a stage fashion. But, but that would be one of the rare few situations where you would go ahead and do a Whipple. And John, uh, what about uh, access for feeding? Do you do routinely? Yeah, and, yeah. Usually, you want to get a dop off to pass the injuries while you're in the operating room. Um, placing one of these on the floor uh, usually requires another procedure, fluoroscopy, to do so, and then it also obviously makes any surgeon or nurse performing the procedure very nervous. Uh, and then you would also want to place an NG tube in the stomach uh, for decompression. Right. Can, can I make a plea for not doing a jejunostomy tube? Yes, you can. <laughs> you can. You can. A lot and, of books say that, and you know, like you know, you can put a, a surgical gigantostomy tube. But if there's no hole in the small bowel, don't make an atrogenic hole in there. I mean, you know, almost almost always, as John mentioned, you can put in a dump of tube, and you can pass it beyond the repair, and you can decompress the stomach. So, don't make a hole in the in the small bowel if you don't have to. What about making holes in the duodenum to put stuff like malacots and other crazy drains in, yeah, in the duodenum? No, I, I think if somebody is in a damage control situation, and that's why I mentioned that before, I mean, you have to keep an eye on the physiology of the patient. If the patient was an extremist, then putting in a malacot and just accepting a, a duodenostomy tube as a bailout damage control procedure is, is an acceptable thing. You don't want to have the patient die on the table while you're doing a beautiful two-layer repair or single-layer repair or something. Um, it, it's those things are not trivial. It takes a long time for that to heal, so it's not. Um, it shouldn't be done like under something like you know that's there is no good durable solution. Um, and that's sort of like you know where this whole concept of pyloric exclusion comes in, like you know. I've probably in 20 years done it three times. Uh, I think it's written more than it's done. Uh, and I think when the pyloric exclusion was popularized, um, 
by Dr. Byrne. I mean, there was no IR, there was no ERCP. I mean, you know, uh, those injuries were devastating. Uh, but nowadays, with all the tools that we have available, I think the, the need for pilaric exclusion is minimal. If you can get a good duodenal repair, um, you can get go to mental patch on it, put some drains in it, um, in the area, you don't have to do pyloric exclusion. Yeah, I've never done that. John, have you done a pyloric exclusion for in a, in a trauma setting? I've taken care of people who've had it done, but I've never done one personally. Right, right. All right. Any last tips or tricks for our, our listeners on this, uh, this real life case? Uh, no, I, I think it's an ex- exciting case, but um, if you have penetrating abdominal trauma, a patient who's hypotensive with a high shock index, think about bleeding. Think about bleeding again, and maybe the third time, think about bleeding. Uh, think about uh, hollow viscous injury. Um, fast, not all that helpful. CT scan in a, in a patient in shock, probably not a great idea. And once you get into the abdomen, your, your priorities are in the same order, control bleeding and control a hollow viscous injury. And if the patient's physiology allows you to do it, then do a definitive operation the first time around. Fantastic. The only thing I would add probably is I think we skipped it was this uh, leaving drains on everything uh, initially, especially at the beginning you know, of the damage control procedure. Uh, and then afterwards, you know, be more selective with them. Fantastic. All right. Well, that wraps up this, this uh, clinical challenges and surgery. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please do take a minute or two out of your hectic day to leave us a review. And until next time, dominate the day.